0: I tend to talk about brains a lot, picking at them, exploring them, just sort of basically violating this whole brain-mind space. And I was thinking to myself, why do I do that? And not just why, because I mean, it's fairly obvious, it is a very fascinating subject. But more importantly, what am I even doing talking about brains? I'm pretty much a moron who doesn't even have a basic functioning knowledge of how the human brain works. And one of my oldest friends in the world is a tiny bit of an expert in the field. Assistant professor of biology at DePore University and PhD in medical neuroscience. And I can't stress this enough, but just an all-round amazing, amazing guy and a damn genius to boot. And I realize now that I have to refer to you as Dr. Dr. Nippon Chopra. Welcome to the show, man. It's
1: good to be here on with you, bro. First of all, the part where you said, I don't have a functioning knowledge, I thought you were going to say, I don't have a functioning brain, in which case that would have been perfect as well. Uh, It's great to be on with you. I think you've done such a great job. I've listened to the first two episodes, really great job. As I've told you before, I think you, out of all my friends, you are uniquely suited for this format, for this kind of interaction
0: with your friends. And I learned from the best, didn't I? Because little little <laughs> little known fact, this is not our first rodeo on a podcast. You and I actually started one years ago together, and who would have thought that the lives of two people on the same show could go in such different directions? But uh, I mean, I, I think if one person's a Liverpool fan and the other one's a United fan, it's only natural that we would run away from each other. Yeah, you're spot on. Uh, the last time we were recording, United won its.
1: Uh... Won a league title. Now we're recording. Well, love was won a league title, and in between, neither has won a league title. So there's a there's a there's a clash of, of our lives coming together. And and you're so right. I mean, you know, 2011 is when you and I did our first podcast together, Jarlier. And our lives have diverged in in many ways, but we've we've also converged at times. Right? We, we worked on Exhale together. Worked on a couple of things together. So it's one of those things that. You know, it's not like you and I speak every day or even every month, but there's there's a genuine affection, at least from my end, which I don't have for a lot of people. So there's a genuine affection and uh, like a
0: reconnection whenever we do. You've seen me naked. So that's genuine connection there. (laughs) That's that's the part of the connection I'm trying to (laughs) sell. And seriously, I think I really treasure our friendship. Like you said, despite the fact that we're worlds apart, oceans apart. I don't think it changes anything whenever we do speak to each other. And I've been so excited to have you on this podcast, man. And to be honest, you know, you've been this calming voice of reason in this mayhem, in this madness of the world, these menacing times that we're in. You know, there's so much noise. You don't know what to read. You don't know who to listen to. And then you just come. I mean, just for reference, guys, anybody follows Nippon on Facebook, especially, please add him and follow his Facebook statuses and Twitter, he is, gives such a concise, clear, factual breakdown of this whole COVID situation and the world we're in right now. You know, what it means for us, what, what, what the disease actually entails, where we are with vaccines, everything you do. I now go to him rather than watching any sort of news outlets because um it's such a it comes from such a genuine place and i really appreciate that i don't think you understand what it actually does mean for people you putting that stuff out there
1: i think this is turning into a podcast <laughs> where we're just jerking each other off and we, that's really weird for us because we're usually just making fun of each other so this is really weird um, thank you for saying that i, I think uh, from my perspective um it started with with something you and I know a lot about and talk about is WhatsApp, right? We, I just saw so much misinformation on WhatsApp in my family groups, in my friend circles about this, uh, about COVID. And I was obviously interested in it. I've been reading a lot of papers, and but it wasn't my intention to become a science communicator on COVID. I was just interested in it. And now I'm researching it as well uh, as, a, as a tangential thing. But um, for me, it was just, a thing of, okay, these are these are complete misunderstandings of what's going on. This is a complete misrepresentation of what this is, you know, and that was what started my interest in talking about these things on social media, uh, Facebook, Twitter, as you mentioned, a little bit on Instagram, just to be like, okay, look, we are all in an unprecedented scenario and I, I am worried that people are going to use the misinformation in a particularly scary way, right? So let's take, for example, hydroxychloroquine, which is according to uh, the orange Cheeto uh, a treatment for uh, COVID nineteen. And there's uh, there are people in my family who bought into that, right? Uh, the people I know in stateside who bought into that. And there's such a danger in taking that treatment prophylactically if you have not, if you're not on the guidance of a doctor, because it leads to cardiac abnormalities, leads to a long QT syndrome. Uh, So, you know, it was just a desire to clarify misinformation, and it's kind of morphed into this thing where I post way too much about it.
0: Okay, yeah, so sorry, so that's a a good opening to the conversation, but I really do want to get into uh, what your main area of expertise is, and uh, just to read... Football, right? Let's talk uh, Man United. Do you you really want to talk (laughs) about Man United? (laughs) Right. (laughs) (laughs) I, I I was looking at your university page to see your profile. You know, I want to really focus on your areas of expertise. And so obviously there are two aspects of it as far as I can grasp. And one of it is your work in Alzheimer's disease. And of course, I'd love to get into that. And then we can get into the second part of it, which is concussions and CTE, which I also, I think, have a little bit more information about because it's so prevalent in sports and a lot of sports that we watch but yeah let me know like what what are you working on what are the things that that we need to sort of know about the advancements in alzheimer's treatments etc
1: so uh what i should say is like when i was doing my phd work and my postdoctoral training i was a lot more in that's that was my full time job that's all i did was research and spent 70 hours a week on research right now uh my Day to day job is a lot more professorial, it's a lot more teaching uh, than research. I still do research, um, but I should preface that uh, bef- before I uh, explain anything. Okay, so with Alzheimer's disease, uh, honestly, you know the 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 big conversation in the Alzheimer's field right now is how uh, we need to revisit what we think causes Alzheimer's disease, because the treatments we have designed towards that. Have not worked, and we've tried to design treatments toward that problem in many, many different ways, and they've failed in clinical trials, reaching as far as phase three, and then phasing, uh, sorry, failing. Um, so that's the major area. There's a recent report talking about uh, changing diagnostic principles as well, but honestly, if I were to be very skeptical and look at it from the outside, I would say the Alzheimer's field is stuck in stasis and has been for. Two decades. So is
0: it like what is it that we don't know? I mean, just to sort of break it down, like how does it work in a brain? Like what what happens to the brain when somebody starts getting um, symptoms of Alzheimer's?
1: Honestly, that's the magic question, and I'll tell you why. So, when uh, as you, uh, as you know, um, the way we confirm Alzheimer's disease, um, so so there there are some behavioral things that show up. Uh, You can do a behavioral test for dementia. You can do some neuroimaging to uh, test for certain things in the brain. But generally, just like uh, most neurodegenerative diseases, we are confirming for Alzheimer's disease also post-mortem. So you look at the brain of someone that uh, uh, has died from presumed Alzheimer's disease and you slice it and you look for specific kinds of uh, markers, specific kinds of proteins in the brain. Now. These proteins, one's called amyloid, one's called tau, and we don't need to get into them in detail. But they are two different kinds of proteins that we believe that, that all always show up in someone that is diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. Yeah. Okay. We've known that for... Uh, uh, Alois Alzheimer discovered this roughly in 1912. So we've known that for over 100 years. So for the longest time, we've believed that these two proteins are the reason we have Alzheimer's disease. However, when we've tried to reduce the amount of this amyloid stuff, one of these two proteins, hasn't really changed disease uh, progression. Um, And the the question remains in the field, are these two things, which are undoubtedly there, are they there because of the disease? In other words, are they downstream of the disease or are they causing the disease? And that remains the fundamental question in the field of
0: Alzheimer's disease. And like, How do people recognize if somebody's got Alzheimer's in the sense that, sorry, I might be asking very basic questions. But, you know, like in terms of the the difference between, say, dementia or Alzheimer's or is dementia a step towards Alzheimer's? Like, how does that kind of work?
1: Great question. So Alzheimer's is one kind of dementia. It is the most common kind of dementia. Dementia essentially just means a change in your cognitive state. Right, it could be a loss in memory, like it is in Alzheimer's. It could be a change in personality, uh, which is one of the first signs of, say, frontotemporal dementia. It could be a change. It could be a change in motor function sometimes and Parkinsonian dementia, which is a rarer kind of dementia because Parkinson's is mostly a motor disease. Anyway, so uh, so how do we so come back to your question? How do we diagnose it? So we diagnose it when someone's alive based on these. uh, So if, if I'm being tested for dementia, and you're the neurologist, which is an absolutely frightening thing, uh, you actually look like a neurologist now. To be fair with your beard, as you as you stroke it, <laughs> but uh, the part of you uh, being in charge of anyone's life uh, gives me the creeps. So, uh, you would ask me questions that would ascertain my memory, in the case of Alzheimer's, and my visuals, and my and my skills. Uh, not only memory, memory is one portion of what is called the MMST score, but your, uh, suffice to say, you asked about 30 questions, and if you score lower than 25, I think it's the 20 or 25 is the cutoff, it's been a while since I looked at this, out of those 30 questions, you start getting, uh, it, it, you may fall into the early category of dementia, and if you get really low, like you get five or six questions, then you have late dementia, is what we call it, so early MCI, late, anyway. But the point is that there are, there are behavioral tests we do while someone's alive to say they have dementia. And if it's heavily related to memory, it's usually Alzheimer's disease. If it's heavily related to personality changes and, uh, and depression and uh, gambling, then you go down the route of frontotemporal dementia, CTE, right, which we'll talk about.
0: But just from a human point of view, um, it seems like an incredibly terrifying place to be uh, to, to go through because it can leave you completely disoriented. And um, if if you do not even remember the people in your family and stuff like that, I don't know if those are just extreme cases of what it is, but um, it, it is a worrying thing that you said that it, that there doesn't seem to be, it's not, doesn't seem to be getting anywhere in terms of treatments.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I think that's absolutely fair. Um it really is not, the only real tre- effective treatment we've had came out in 1996, it's called memantine, and it's it treats the symptoms, not the disease. Uh, has a completely unexpected mechanism, it was found completely by accident. So since 1996, we really haven't had a treatment approved for Alzheimer's disease, which is kind of frightening, right? Um, there's been a lot of money, a fun- lot of funding in Alzheimer's disease, uh, the highest amount for the, N- for the NIH with National Institute of Health in America puts most of its money towards Alzheimer's and cancer and heart disease. Um, And the incidence of Alzheimer's is only expected to rise. As as you were talking about India, right? One of the things we know about India is the average uh, population is much younger than a lot of European and Western countries. Now things are changing in India and people are living longer. So we're expecting to see an increase even in India. And we're already seeing an increase in incidence in India, Uh, whether it's incidence or diagnosis is a fair question you know what what i what i encourage you to think about is that alzheimer's and uh, alzheimer's actually a disease that affects the family as much as it does the person if not more some would argue more because some some would argue that once you have advanced alzheimer's you're actually in a state of bliss where you don't really know you don't have memory so you don't have a frame of wreck, you don't have a frame of reference to understand what's going on so it's not it's obviously very scary at the start, but once you have late onset, also, uh, sorry, when you have, uh, when you're later on in the Alzheimer's, you know, it's almost, almost blissful. And I say that in quotes, because obviously it's horrible. Whereas the family has to deal with the consequences of a parent forgetting them. And, you know, we, we are, we are our experiences as told by people we love. Right. So like for me, I remember things a certain well, let, let's talk about you and me right now, right? Your you probably don't even remember the time where we met. Or your story of your
0: your story of it must have been so banal where you just met a dude at I a I mean, body, like right? it's like be, be specific, which octopus hat were you talking about? I mean, what a <laughs> narrow <Exactly>. dark. <down. laughs> which color? <laughs> yeah, which color was it? Uh, but for
1: you to hear it from my perspective enriches that moment, right? Now. Imagine what you would feel like, and you, aren't, you and I aren't even family, right? Imagine what that would feel like if I were to completely invalidate it and be like, no, we never met, uh, that I don't know you, right? It kind of shakes your, you at your very core, right? So I think it, there's a argu- strong argument to be made that Alzheimer's actually, in terms of its impact, has the greatest impact on caregivers and people that, uh, that are loved ones,
0: it's so profound the way you put it and actually made me think of something else, even though I do want to get into CT and stuff. This, this, this made me think of something else in terms of memories and just what memories means. You know, for me, it's always been, um, when you have a powerful memory, I feel like it's only as powerful as that moment that you're living it. And it never, it never holds the same strength One year, two years, five years later. And I've always felt that especially say in relationships, you know, when you're when you're in love with somebody, that moment, you think there's nobody else more important than you and that person, and you can't you can't even imagine how it could be anything else. Right? And and it's such a strong, powerful emotion. And then five years later, you look back and you can't remember that that moment as strongly. And you don't and, and and that breaks my heart, just thinking that I've lost that forever.
1: Pajala, you should think about it in, in terms of, uh, and for once, I'm going to be the optimist yeah. here. You ready? Because <laughs> I'm always the pessimist. In, in my family, in my friends, I'm always the pessimist, okay? So this is a good opportunity for me. Let's think about that. Let's go back to the same story, right? This this story is going to be a, a, a center point for our conversation. Yeah, it's going to be our crux. That moment where I recognized that I had no chance with this girl I was in love with, was emotionally laden for me. It was difficult to get past. Now, when I think back, I laugh. And we have likely evolved the the ability to separate that as a self-preservative mechanism. Because if I held on to that pain always, and by the way, there are are some things called episodic memories in which you can feel the pain a little bit. Um, But if we held on to the emotion and the pain for every single uh, memory, we would not be able to get through the day. The flip side of that is what you're saying. You you can't experience that happiness ever again, right? Uh, but I think it, the reason we have evolved this uh, is because it's uh, it's to protect us from our most Yeah, I, I think memories.
0: that makes sense because I don't think I thought about it like this. So it's almost like, be careful what you wish for. It's like, oh, I want to preserve all these memories, but you've got to realize what that balance is. Um, yeah, so One of the connections you sort of made when you were talking about Alzheimer's, especially the fact that you can only sort of analyze it posthumously, kind of has that link with the second part of what we want to talk about is CTE, uh, concussions, and I think maybe it's best for you to sort of explain what that means exactly. But before you get into that, um, I'll tell you what it sort of meant for me. In recent times, especially, like I, I'm a huge American football fan. Um, I've always been very gung ho about you know, wrestling. I remember, were you ever into WWF WWE in Calcutta? Dude, I watched it last night. I watched it last night. <laughs> it was such a big thing in Calcutta. And I used to go over to some friend's house. I used to have these two Korean twins in my school in CS. And then they would just take turns to body slam me and suplex me and throw me off the top of the bed. <laughs> and uh, it was just uh, so much fun to be part of that and take one on the chin. And I would watch like American football and I'd be banging for blood when I'd see the clashing of helmets and two people crushing each other. And I'm like, yeah, let's go. And then suddenly... Now, as you get older and all these studies come out and I'm watching documentaries and movies and that's where you come in um, to tell us what that really means. Now, I've got a whole different outlook. I'm watching the same stuff and I'm cringing. If I watch a UFC fight, somebody gets slammed headfirst into the mat. I'm like, oh, my God, uh, a clash of helmets. It's, it's terrifying because now you know the real cost. And that really comes to what you are doing with CTA especially.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I, my experience is the same, Chala. I've, I've, I've been obsessed with WWE most of my life. Like, in, a, in, in I'm 36 years old. I should not be obsessed with WWE. But even now, like, I'll watch it, you know, four, five, ten times a year, right? Uh, speaking of uh, injuries, um, you know, I was, uh, Lamartine, and you know the story, Chala, but I should share it. Uh, Lamartine is one of, two, or was one of two schools in the entire country that allowed intramural boxing. And uh, I was involved with boxing, Uh, as you know. I I was just like a jock. I played every sport that was. Uh, One of the sports that I was really good at uh, was rugby, and I was, uh, you know, I was 120 pounds, (laughs) probably less than that, uh, going up against guys that were maybe not twice, but one and a half times my my weight, right? And and I went in to tackle him. He's much much bigger than me. And uh, you almost start to tackle with your shoulders in rugby, right? Uh, of course, which is the right technique of tackling. And this guy, I remember him coming towards me, and he, he obviously saw that I was much smaller than him, and I was going to go in for this tackle. So I'm, I remember him kicking his foot out like this. like in the You know how those jokers, uh, like clowns, kick out their yeah, feet yeah, while yeah. dancing? This dude was wasn't very fast, of course, so he could afford to do this portion of it. And he kicked out his foot and struck the side of my head and obviously i went down but of course the only thing I, so i i was out right I, I was carried to the sideline and no one actually cared that i got hurt that was a rite of passage they were very proud of me because i had taken him down you know kind of tripped him with one hand and so even at that young age it became i was uh you know reinforced to me that it doesn't matter what happens to your safety you're conditioned to think that that's like a badge of honor you're, exactly i'm the same way as you i was a i was a product of that and i i perpetuated that until i was probably you know probably after i left college is when i started becoming interested in cpe uh, one of the things that uh, started that interest is a common story you and i have which is uh the death of this wwe wrestler uh murder suicide uh chris benoit a canadian wrestler who's at the time was considered one of the best in the world i loved him uh, you know, I love Bret Hart. He was always my favorite guy and Chris Benoit was a generation Canadian wrestler generation below him just younger than him um, And also I love Chris Benoit and I remember reading about the story. Uh, this is actually still when I was in high school uh, But I didn't process it till later uh, About this murder-suicide and of course later on he, he uh for people who don't know he uh, killed his His son killed his wife and then killed himself um, and uh, his brain was positive for CTE. Um, And that, you know, is it... And So what does that mean? What does that mean uh, when you say, okay, your
0: brain is... Yeah,
1: yeah, positive for CTE. So after you... So like Alzheimer's disease, if you look at the brain of someone who has CTE, you'll actually see physical holes in it because the neurons have died you've lost neuronal mass neurons. Uh, But why it happens in CTE has also to do with one of those two proteins I talked about, amyloid and tau. In the case of CTE, amyloid is very rare and tau is a lot more present. There's a specific kind of tau, a modified shape of tau, which makes it very sticky. And as it sticks together, it kills neurons. It precipitates out and it kills neurons. um, And those are called tau tangles or neurotic tangles is what they're called. Uh, so anyway, so there's a huge amount of this and it kind of starts in this part of your <laughs> this is a podcast. I don't know why I'm doing this. <laughs> I, I literally put my hands in front of my head as if you all can see me. Uh, in the part of the brain that's just sitting behind your temple, which is called the frontal cortex and the prefrontal cortex. Now, these are the parts of the, the brain that you can think of as a break, and what I mean by that is, think of our experience and huge oversimplification, you'll have to forgive me, but think of our experiences as, you know, we have emotional reactions to things, right? So when, when I see your face, I get angry, right? That's a normal reaction for me, right? Whenever I see your face. So uh, I would want to normally, if I, was a, if I was a primate, I might come and try to punch you, right? But the prefrontal cortex and the frontal cortex tell me, okay, that's not so societally acceptable. We need to stop that behavior, right? So it is the break that uh, uh, the frontal cortex, prefrontal cortex is the part that humans have developed to suppress our normal impulses. Since that's the part that's normally affected in CTE, some of the symptoms you start to see early in CTE are increased gambling, sex addiction, increased uh, addiction to other uh, 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 like vices, opiates addiction, uh, heroin addiction, stuff like that. So an increase. Uh, sorry, a reduced ability to fight your own urges is one of the first symptoms you see in CTE. <clears throat> then you see depression. Eventually, you you see a personality
0: because again, your personality is being protected, and now that protection is kind of unlayered. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. It's mostly encoded in this in this area again behind your temple, uh, and then eventually we see uh, suicidality. We see. Um, a, in the late stages of CTE, we start to see memory impairment because the, uh, because the part that's controlling early uh, uh, memory formation is actually sitting kind of deep in your brain called the hippocampus and entorhinal cortex. And those are kind of protected most of the time. They are the first to go in Alzheimer's disease, but they go much later in CTE. And they go very, very, very rarely in Parkinson's. So again, these are differences in how these diseases manifest, so that you know which one you're
0: dealing so with. So, how does it come about? Because, like, I'm trying to understand the theory. Is it is it just your head colliding with things over a prolonged period of time, and then it started starts to deteriorate that frontal cortex, or is it the brain within the skull just bashing around within the skull, and that's doing the damage? So it's actually the internal movement of the brain and skull rather than the skull on another immovable object.
1: Well, it's that it's both those things. And one more thing I'll tell you about. So it's also the, the, the first thing is absolutely true you collide with someone there's impact of your brain moving inside your skull and there' these they are both uh, vertical forces they're also gyroscopic rotational forces as your your brains actually sitting inside uh, your brain's not actually just sitting in the skull it's actually uh, like a jelly between your brain and your skull and it rotates and it and as it rotates it, it causes micro tears in some places it causes if, if it's a severe enough skull fracture uh, uh, come back to soccer if you remember uh, John Terry against that Bolton defender whose name I forget now because it's been so while that you can call a bleed in your brain. So, you know, those are all primary injury. Okay. So that's what happens with a concussion. You can get knocked out. Um, and you know, you have to, you have to do a specific, uh, you show some symptoms, but there's also a secondary part of this, which is called the secondary inflammation. So Say you recover that first, say you have a concussion, as I did when I played rugby, not diagnosed, I'm (laughs) self-diagnosing. Yeah,
0: Yeah, I think we've all, yeah, we've all had one or two concussions. I remember I got cracked open with a cricket bat in school. I was wicked, I was wicked, I was wicked keeping way too close to the batsman for some reason. I don't know what I was doing. And he did a full switch. Jala, based on
1: episode two and what you've told me, we really, at some point, maybe we need to flip roles here
0: and dive into (laughs) the impact. No, 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 no. Cricket, cricket, cricket bat was, was pre-boarding school. It was in Calcutta and it was an accident. Let me
1: just lay that out. Okay. Gotcha. This just sounds like (laughs) there's a lot of,
0: I mean, as, as someone uh, that
1: has a lot of repressed memories and a lot of repressed anger. I feel like we need to delve into yours pretty soon. She's going to talk about our repressed <laughs> memories. I like that. And Karan, uh, since you're listening, I'm going to say that I should take over and play host that day and we should do a jala episode and we'll we'll get to the bottom of where this creepiness comes from. Um, so, so there's the primary part. And say so you recover from the concussion or the injury from that, right? You, you can die from that first hit, right? There's a thing called subdural hematoma where the, blood collects in your brain and pushes down the rest of your brain through the only space back here and it's called hemorrhaging and you die right but most people will recover um, and then what happens is there's a phase of secondary inflammation what does that mean it means that your neurons in your brain and and there are these other cells in your brain which are kind of kind of like with the white blood cells in your body okay they're basically responsible for the immune response quota an oversimplification in your brain they're called microglia and astrocytes when they see that the neurons have got damaged as what happens after this injury they start to release factors just like your normal body would it would release cytokines right which causes more white blood cells to come and attack the infection same thing in the brain you get more microglia more astrocytes and you get an overreaction of the immune part of your brain and that persists over time and that leads to long-term
0: damage, which is what then eventually leads to neurodegenerative diseases such as CTE. But when you say okay. it persists over time, it's not persisting on that one incident that you've had, right? It's then a series Great question. of these clashes. So actually,
1: let, let's, let's combine COVID and uh, CTE here to understand what I'm saying. So what happens in COVID is that you're, uh, there's a thing called a cytokine storm. Okay, that's a fancy way of saying that your body detected the virus and produced an immune response like it should have. But then, due to some reasons that we don't need to get into, your body keeps on reacting to the virus. Even if the virus is not there, it keeps on sending white blood cells, which release more cytokine, which sends more white blood cells. And that leads to basically your lungs becoming flooded with blood, which is what leads to a part of uh, what is the uh, uh, ARDS, the Respiratory Distress Syndrome, okay? Same thing in the brain. After your body, uh, your brain has actually not, um, you, you suffered the first injury, your microglia reacted like they should have, but then more micro. instead of that stopping, more microglia are coming in over time more astrocytes are overreacting. They're releasing more factors leading to more microglia. So it's like a storm, cytokine storm inside your brain, which is one of the things that happens, Jala, is if you have too much of this stuff, your, your immune cells, instead of attacking a virus, they start attacking your normal neurons. Think of it. Another, a good, another good analogy is, say uh, there's a fire in your brain, right? So the fire engine comes in, puts out the, uh, puts out the fire. Everything's good, life goes back to normal. Now imagine a scenario where the fire in your brain, fire engine, the fire engine, which are the microglia, comes in, they start putting out the fire, the fire is gone, and you're trying to start your life again in the house, but they'll never leave. In fact, they're bringing in more fire engines and adding more water to the building. It's gonna destroy the building, right? So that's what's happening. Again, it's happening in ARDS with uh, with COVID, that's happening in your brain with the microglial overactivation.
0: So so just to get that straight, that means you're saying that that one incident could affect you the rest of your life.
1: That's a great question. So the answer, honest answer to that is we don't know. There is no, at this point, there is no conclusive evidence linking concussions to CTE. There is, there is correlational evidence, strong correlational sense. evidence. <laughs> but see, as a scientist. As a scientist, you have to be careful, and I should have been more careful. So I'm, I really appreciate you clarifying that because I should have been more careful. Because, so let's take the study that you probably heard about. Came about three years ago, Professor Ann McKee at Harvard University um, was the senior author in this. She looked at the brains of about 120 athletes. Okay, uh, and they were mostly football players, mostly NFL retired NFL players. There were a few MMA boxers, uh, MMA athletes, which is what I studied. Sorry, when we say football, which should just say it's American football, the one there <laughs> yeah. American football. Thank you. Yeah, exactly. I've i uh, so by the way, this in a week will be the anniversary of when I moved to the states. Exactly half my lifetime, half a lifetime ago, right? So I've now I say soccer without even thinking about, it, even though I should laugh at it when I was in India. So um so her study showed that 96% 96% of the brains from of NFL football players showed CTE 96%. Now if you are someone that doesn't understand the scientific experience, uh, scientific process you would be like pull your kid away from football immediately and I personally I would but that's my choice. But a, but a, someone who is a scientist has to give you the caveat. And it is a very big caveat. That caveat is there's a huge self-selection bias in that data.
0: Because you're not examining the brains of the people who are not suffered through the thing or whatever. Exactly. So then you would never know what the correlation is. Right. So, we, so what we can say, I
1: think what that study showed beyond reasonable doubt is that NFL, uh, uh, playing, uh, being a part of the NFL and being a, a actually, I can't even say that. What it showed without a reasonable doubt is that being a part of the league may lead to increased chances of CTE. That's all that should to be from a perfectly skeptical scientific perspective. Now, when you bring in common sense and you bring in that stuff, I would say the link is fairly strong. Yeah, but I
0: mean, having watched the sport and for people who don't watch that much, I mean, there seems to be a disproportionate ratio of um, people who are have violent tendencies. Um, quite a few suicides, murders, domestic violence.
1: But, that, but there's a key pushback to that. And there's a key pushback to that that I have to share here. It is possible that there's a self-selection bias in the people who want to play football. Right. So there's a, it's a possible that the kind of person that gets to that elite level already has inherent aggression, already has an inherent ability or desire to take risk. Right. So that's why we have to be careful to say correlation here, because it's completely possible that there is a personality type and therefore potentially a genetic type that is resulting in these behaviors.
0: That's actually, that's actually a great point, which I never thought of, because, yeah, it takes a certain kind of personality to be brave enough to go, I'm going to go head first and use my helmet as a weapon to go charge at somebody. So they may be pre sort of con- conditioned to behave in that way as well. But but yeah, I mean, I, I guess it, the, the science is still kind of nascent because, as you said, you can't really check anything until people um, die. And that also if they've given permission for their brains or the family's given permission for their brains to be investigated.
1: Yeah, that's true. Uh, it is changing, Jali. So there, there are some studies now suggesting that uh, we may have biomarkers for CTE. There was a recent study about uh, two weeks ago that suggested that we may be able to detect this particular protein in the blood. But it's not a robust study yet, and you need a lot more work. In fact, my research uh, on TBI focuses on one of those potential biomarkers called S100 beta which is a protein that going back to the astrocytes that we talked about, right. One of the fire firemen coming in fire engines coming in, it releases this thing called S100 beta when it, when there's uh, when there's a, um, um, uh, when it notices damage in the brain. So the idea is that if we were to measure this S100 beta in your cerebral spinal fluid or in the blood where it's almost impossible to measure in your cerebral spinal fluid, that could be potentially a biomarker for uh, someone that, It could be, well, it's almost certainly a biomarker of a concussion. And therefore, if you measure it over time, it may be a biomarker of a CTE.
0: Okay, say argument's sake, they find a direct link with what is happening in the NFL. And of course, now the body of evidence at least seems to be growing uh, from, I think, Junior Seau may may have been the first one to sort of commit suicide. And I think he was the first one who got his brain checked. And I think a lot of people will have watched the Aaron Hernandez documentary and seen that. When they did a study of his brain, it turned out to be... They said they've never seen a brain of that age in such a young person. Right. Tenuous links, like you said, there's nothing that can be proved. But when it does get to a point, just from your own standpoint, do you think that a sport and a body as powerful as the NFL, that it can actually stop? That it, that it could actually be... Do you, think, do you think that it's just too big to fail, like one of those things? if it ever did come to that?
1: That's a great question. I I don't know. I think, I think there's, American football is entrenched in this culture the way cricket is entrenched in our culture back home, right? Um, I think there's a, Americans tend to have a desire to be very, uh, um, you know, there's 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 a pushback against anything that's feminine in men, right? Very, very, very masculine, very, very aggressive. Those are, you know, every second person on the street has a gun, right? They're they're obsessed with violence in in a weird way. Uh, They have this weird, complicated relationship with violence. Have you got a gun yet under your mattress? No, 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 no. (laughs) Absolutely no. Um, The the data with guns isn't something we should get into someday, but...
0: Guns don't kill people. People kill people. (laughs) I love that.
1: I swear there are so many... Just the, this, just the skepticism of data and evidence in this country is something I've never experienced before. It's definitely, you know, India has its problem with pseudoscience a lot, right? Like, uh, speaking of medicines for, uh, what, what was that, gal mutra, right? Like, this is absurd pseudoscience. But the skepticism people here have of science is, is crazy to me. So anyway... Uh, in terms of the NFL, like I, I think it would, it might be too big to fail. There's some evidence suggesting that kids, the amount number of kids playing football has reduced in youth football. However, what we we don't know enough to see whether that means it'll reduce in high school and college. And if-
0: they are they are changing the rules, saying you can't tackle, you can't lead with the helmet. They're trying a lot of different things. Um, even the quality that there's a lot of focus on on the helmet itself. And trying to keep that protected, but now I'm trying. To, I'm trying. To, I'm seeing that this is worrying a lot of people in a lot of different areas. Like, I think even now, getting back to soccer, as you call it, or football, I was reading somewhere that in Scotland they've banned heading. The ball for kids under the age of 14 or something, it might be. I need to pull up the exact stats on that. And I know you said there's, there's no correlation really to that. But obviously, it's concerning people or parents or something. And they're like, we better err on the side of caution.
1: Yeah, definitely. In America, for two, three years now, uh, uh, the, uh, the United States Soccer Federation uh, has basically said no heading until the age of 10. And then you do a little bit of light heading when you get to the age of fourteen, is when you can start to head the ball at light heading. <laughs> light. I forget what how they phrase it. Yeah, light heading sounds really weird, right? So light heading. <laughs> so it's a little light heading. Uh, I think you're only allowed to head in practice or something like that. I think is what it is for when you're between ten to fourteen. Uh, again, I may have that wrong, but um, the details there is so the the problem I have is um, first of all, there's actually no conclusive no evidence by the way that a properly headed ball can produce a concussion the majority of the concussions in soccer in football come from head-to-head impact head-to-elbow head-to-knee head-to-post in the case of goalkeepers right they often hit the post so those are the primary areas of uh, concussive uh, uh, of uh, of concussive uh, diagnosis and concussive uh, uh, implementation however What I worry about with this recent decision by the USSF is when you're on your early stage, when you're younger, you're not hitting the ball very hard. So it's actually good to learn how to head when you're six, or at least the principle of it, six, seven, eight years old, because you just can't kick the ball hard, right? What I'm worried about is you're going to get to 14 years of age, and now you have full contact heading. You'll have kids that have never developed the neck muscles to learn how to head, never develop the proper technique of heading the ball, and they're going to start to head the ball from here, from the top of your head, the side of your head, your face, because you just never developed the technique and the understanding and of the uh, the
0: hyperbolic shape of how the ball travels. I mean, I still I still can't head a ball properly, sir. So I know what you mean. But Deepun, before we before we close this conversation, and, and seriously, man, this has been amazing. I don't know if I've cut you off too early and you have a a billion other things to talk about. But I will be very honest that the reason that I've got you in this conversation is so that you could spend 60 minutes in the company of my brain and do a little bit of an analysis of what you thought is going on in there. Like, like I said, Jali, uh, I think
1: there's a lot to unpack in there. I think there's, there's a lot to figure out what the hell is going on in that brain because I've wondered many, many times. It's a special
0: place. Let's put it that way and we'll leave, we'll leave it at that. <laughs> Nippon man, doctor, doc, appreciate it, man. Early in the morning, you're in Indianapolis. No, where are you? Yeah, you are. Yeah, that's right. Indianapolis, yeah. man, crazy. And uh, managing to connect during these corona times. And I'm so glad that I'm doing this podcast because it's giving me that opportunity to reach out to people I haven't for a while. And so talk to you in another three to five years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sounds about right, Jala. We'll, we'll come up with a, a, some sort of podcast
1: in three to five years. But genuine pleasure, man. It's so good to talk to you. And, you know, like I said, you're doing a great job.
0: Keep Keep fighting the good fight keep um, keep working hard and making us all so damn proud in Calcutta especially and uh, I need to know what's going on with Corona man so please update me on Facebook Gaumutra dude yeah, Gaumutra Gaumutra's the way forward alright cheers brother talk to you soon thank you Shanks again for being the cheers, voice in my ear talk to you all in a bit thanks guys